This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. Thank you very much indeed, Gregory, and thank you to the Oversight Foundation for giving us this place in which to develop the conversation that Gregory has already started for us, and I think in an interestingly provocative way, and I mean that in a very positive sense. Um, politics, yes, politics are a major part of the, of the picture at, at the present time, but then they always have been. It was politics which actually led the League of Nations into the international protection of refugees, and it's politics which played a not necessarily positive role in the separation of the refugee out from the stateless person in the late 1940s, international politics in particular. But I think what has certainly changed is the extent to which local politics have become uh, a major, have begun to have a major impact on the discourse. And I think it's quite clear that some of those politics have captured the language and have captured the discourse to the detriment of the refugee and the migrant. And I think one of the tasks ahead of us uh, advocating whether for refugees or for migrants will be precisely to broaden the constituencies uh, of support. Now, like many others, the, the Caldor Centre, which is far away in the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia, has nonetheless been tracking the ambitious, the ambitions and challenges of the global compact process. And its policy brief series, indeed, tries to bring together legal, academ legal academic rigour to practical contemporary policy challenges. But this is the first occasion on which we've launched a policy brief outside uh, Australia and in partnership on this occasion wonderfully with the Zolberg Institute for Migration and Mobility. And we could not have, have done better than to work with, with the Institute's director, Alex Alenikoff, and with Georgetown University Professor Emerita Susan Martin. Each of them, as you know, and as Gregory has already indicated, comes to this challenge with a wealth of shared knowledge and experience, not just as scholars, uh, but through their contributions, their own contributions to policy making and implementation, and by way in particular of their, what I would call their rootedness in the practical demands which come up in the movements of refugees uh, and migrants. I think in many respects when we ask them to undertake this task, it's a little unfair to ask them to take aim at a moving target, but they have done, I think, a wonderfully comprehensive job. Of course, you can hit moving targets, you, you aim, you lead, and then you fire, and then you follow through. And I think what, um, what Susan and what Alex have done is to indicate, indeed, not just recommendations for incorporation of the global compacts, but they put down markers for the future beyond the global compacts, whether they are adopted or not. And I think that, that's exactly what we wanted uh, from the Caldor Center's perspective. The policy brief is about, of course, the global compacts. But behind the policy brief, behind the global compacts, there is the New York Declaration on Refugees and Migrants. And Gregory has given some of the background to that already. And in my view, that New York Declaration is itself a remarkable and comprehensive document indeed. Uh, it was adopted by the General Assembly, as you know, in September 2016. With the memory then of the extensive suffering and loss of life among the hundreds of thousands seeking refuge and security, the General Assembly, by consensus, which is as near to unanimity as you get these days, by consensus firmly endorsed the basic principles of protection, but it recognized too that something needed to be done to strengthen the capacity of all states affected by the movements of people among them to improve the predictability of responses to the challenges of displacement 
and to galvanize the search for solutions. And as our authors show in the policy brief, we now have what seems to many of us a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity uh, to improve the international system protecting refugees and migrants. And of one thing we can be sure, there will be more migration. Much of it will be internal, something that's occasionally forgotten, rural to urban, amongst other things. Much of it will be, however, international. Some of it will be driven by the desperate search for a livelihood. Some of it, perhaps, may be simply opportunistic. But much of it also will be a movement in flight, in search of protection, to escape conflict, to escape persecution, violence, massive violations of human rights, or the ravages of nature and climate change. And the process of migration is, as we know from experience, eminently rational, in the sense that people who are desperate weigh the risks to themselves, to their families, their children. And we know, too, that if the drivers are powerful enough, those people will do things that you and I would find impossible, even unimaginable. And that, I regret, is a dimension which many of today's policymakers fail to understand when they pretend that they can deter the movements of people. Those of concern to the UNHCR and to its UN partner agencies now number in excess of 65 million. Nearly 7 million, or perhaps many more, remain refugees remain in what are somewhat blithely termed protracted refugee situations, waiting for a solution for more than five years in situations which it is estimated now last on average 26 years. World population growth may be slowing, but that in the least developed countries certainly is not. And there is already, as the ILO confirms for us, a youth unemployment problem in a number of volatile parts of the world. So the bases, the drivers, the basic drivers for movement are already in place in many areas. And migration, as we know also, cannot be isolated from poverty, from inequality, from underdevelopment, any more than refugee movements can be separated from first causes or from the secondary incidents of insecurity and waning or non-existing non opportunities for long-term solutions, education and work. The question is, can we learn? Can we learn to respond in ways that do not increase the sum of misery? that do not lead to avoidable harm for those who move, and that do not result in policies and practices of abuse, which are too often a feature of the modern approach. And looking at what is done these days in the name of borders, it's as if those who, facing challenges, certainly simply gave up and gave in too rapidly, too easily, to talking tough, doing harm, and going nowhere. Seventy years or so ago, the General Assembly recognized that no single state should have to carry alone the responsibilities of protecting and assisting refugees and finding solutions. This, solutions, this was an international issue calling for international cooperation. It took 70 years in 2016 for the General Assembly, that's to say states at large, finally to accept that migration too is an international issue is challenges beyond the capacity of a single state, no matter how seductive the lure of unilateralism. But seeing the international is one thing, translating it into working systems, commensurate with law and rights and principle and protection, is quite another. What we're trying to do in the Caldor Center, together with our partners in the Zollberg Institute and our collaborators worldwide, is to produce an evidence base which 
through what we like to think of and hope is rigorous scholarship and rigorous methodology will ideally inform the policies of the future. We're not advocates in the traditional sense, perhaps, but we are advocates within the framework that the evidence allows. And so we focus in the Caldor Center very much on international refugee law and within the bounds of international law at large. And in that, from that perspective, we aim to highlight the phenomenon of displacement and the movement of people between states in all its facets, looking at the linkages, the diasporas, the claims of family, the search for labor, education, investment, above all the necessity for security and freedom from fear. And that includes not just the rights and interests of those who move, but also of states and of the communities which host those in flight. For these communities are often the first responders in time of crisis. Their capacity, their resilience are critical, but too often under-resourced. The United Nations, as we know, we're not blind to this, is premised on the sovereign equality of its members. And although they may have agreed to cooperate in solving humanitarian problems, actually getting there is, as we can see, another matter. States, and this is probably true universally, even if there are variations of degree, are resistant, mightily resistant, to force solutions top-down answers, particularly in matters deemed peculiarly sensitive, such as community membership. And in the absence, it is what it is, in the absence of enforcement, the answer and the commitments must come from within voluntarily. And that, I think, is part of the challenge which Gregory mentioned when he brought in the politics question again. But I would emphasize that this is not a free-fire zone. This is an area of common interest. We know what works, we know what doesn't work, we know about drivers, and we can see that while better management can be achieved, the prevention of movement is an illusion. We can tell the difference between good practices and bad, and know about the harm that commonly follows from ill-formed policies implemented without regard to principle, to the rule of law, to accountability. There is little room any longer for simplistic responses or the traditional tropes it's time to think and act outside the box. And what I want to do now is to encourage a conversation, the beginnings of a conversation between ourselves here, particularly drawing on the experience of our authors, and then to turn to you for questions, for comments and answers. So perhaps, Alex, I can turn to you first of all and have your input on in particular the Global Compact on Refugees. Well, thanks, Guy, and um, thanks, Elisa, for hosting this. Gregory, in particular, your involvement in these issues over the years, most recently over the last year or two, has been absolutely crucial in pushing the, the New York Declaration forward and the work on the compacts here. And uh, for the, the Calgary Center, for wonderful collaboration with Peter's over the Calgary Center, which stretches literally around the world. And, 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 and do more work uh, together. So, Guy, thanks for being here and making the trip. Um, um, I want to talk mainly about the Global Compact on Refugees, but, but let me start by thinking about the fact that we have these two compacts being written in very different ways, one by an international agency, UNHCR, and the other through an interstate uh, negotiation being led by the, the Swiss and, and Mexican uh, co-facilitators. And, and to think about the, the, different, the different ways it's being written and the different subject, what that means in terms of the products here. Um, one of the big differences is in the refugee area, we haven't existed, we have an existing international regime. 
we have a convention and an agency that go back to the 1950s. And in the migration area, we're really starting at a very different spot. What the co-facilitators have described is creating a migration ecosystem because we don't have these international institutions and international norms in the same degree we have in the, in the, in the, in the refugee area. A second distinction here um, is, well, from the European perspective, these are mixed flows of people trying to come to the, uh, Europe without permission to enter. Europe has tended to view these the same. In fact, if you go back to the whole the genesis of the New York Declaration, it really was Europe coming into the UN saying, we've got to do something about this massive flow about the Mediterranean. And the UN actually kind of turning that around and saying, well, that's not really the issue here. It's a much broader set of issues, which has led to two combats that go way beyond the initial motivation for the New York Declaration, I think, in a very good way. But Europe has viewed these kind of as the same. For the hosting states, where the vast, vast majority of, of migrants where refugees are hosted in, in the global south, and those states that remain sending states uh, to Europe, the migration and refugee situation look very different. And you'll see this as we talk about uh, the problems and the kind of solutions. And then one other big difference is, as you know, the U.S. has pulled out of the migration context and is still present in the refugee context. We'll have to see for how long or what that means. Uh, but that that is a significant difference in terms of uh, potential um, the ability to get this through in, in the long run and what the impacts um, might be. Let, let me say a few words then just about the, the refugee compact. Susan is, is the expert on the migration compact. So let's take a step back. What's the central problem we're dealing with here? To my mind, it is not the boats coming across the Mediterranean. That's what got all the headlines ever used. But boats were coming across the Mediterranean because the central problem hadn't been solved and that is the long-standing nature of refugee situations around the world. The vast majority of the world's refugees are the global south in long-term situations, what UNHCR calls protracted refugee situations. There are millions of lives, tens of millions of lives in limbo because refugee situations are unsolved. People can't go home because uh, conflict continues. They're not locally integrated in the society in which they're hosted because those host states the problem is one that should be solved by international community, where people want to go home. And the resettlement slots, as Gregory mentioned, have been shrinking. So the actual ability to move to another place is very small. And so we have these long-standing um, situations. And from that problem come the other kinds of problems with which are familiar. So people eventually take onward movement in, uh, go try to go elsewhere as they, after three or four years, of asylum in Turkey and Lebanon and Jordan, they sought to come to the Mediterranean. That wasn't an immediate flow. That was a flow after there was no resolution to the problem or no significant help in the countries of asylum, or not enough help in the countries of asylum. It's also the cause of inadequate humanitarian financing because the money flows to emergencies. But when something lasts 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the humanitarian funding moves away. You have a, a system that's created dependence without the kind of support that's necessary to really help people rebuild their lives. Um, the cause of this long-standing protracted situation for people is an inadequate burden-sharing system uh, that from the start of the Refugee Convention has not been a part of the Refugee Convention. It's a main focus of the Global Compact on Refugees, and I'll say in a minute or two how far I think um, um, these things have 
responsibilities move forward. And lastly, the, these protracted situations, as I mentioned, is, a, is a, a really a function of a failure of the Security Council system and the UN system as a whole in terms of preventing and resolving conflicts. There's no major refugee hosting situation around the world now that is about to be solved so that people can go home safely. And this is really, I mean, if the UN was created for peace and security around the world and to end wars, it's not doing a very good job at the moment. And so there, in all these places, we've got, um, we all these causes lead to the central problem of people living uh, in these uh, lives in limbo for years and years and years. Now, what then does the compact try to do, and what might it do more than what it is currently um, doing? The main focus of the compact initially was simply on better operational work on the ground, because the recognition was that these situations go on forever. You can't just handle it through humanitarian funding, you need to bring in other actors, particularly the development world, and the private sector to bring in investment and funding that will help the hosting communities as well as refugees as they try to deal with these, uh, as I said, these long-standing um, uh, situations. So the initial work of the so-called CRF, the Comprehensive Refugee Response Framework, which is what the compact was initially going to be about if it had been adopted with the New York Declaration in 2016, was to get the humanitarian and the development guys working better together with a bunch of other stakeholders uh, in place. Nationally, like plans, bring the private sector in if possible, have a comprehensive plan, which has never really been done at local levels. It had been done sporadically with some examples, UNHCR working with the World Bank in Lebanon, some other places, but this was really an attempt to put this model into play and make it work in many refugee situations. So that was the, that was the core, that was to be the core of the Global Compact on Refugees. But because the, because the compact was not adopted uh, in 2016, but like the migrant compact was supposed to then take a year or two to develop, it's actually grown. And like, to my mind, it's very important that it wasn't adopted in 2016 because it has taken on um, a, broader, uh, a broader perspective. So it's, it's looked at how, and this is really, the, I think the new core focus of the compact is in how to create a better responsibility sharing system which aids hosting communities and gets other states involved in, um, in helping refugees move elsewhere, return safely, or be, or be locally um, integrated. Now, as you know, probably the, we've already had, we started with the zero draft. That was kind of strange to think the first draft was called the zero draft. That's what it was called. Now we've got the first draft. We're going to get the second draft, I guess, in a, in a, in a few weeks uh, after this next round of uh, consultation. And there has been movement in the drafts. And in thinking about Gregory's point about the politics of this, there's really an inside and an outside game. And so far, the inside game has worked, which has been go talk to UNHCR and go talk to states who are talking to UNHCR, and you can actually get improvements in the document, my perspective, improvements in the document, which we've seen. A bit more focus now on refugee rights, a stronger statement about what responsibility sharing um, systems uh, uh, might look like. Um, more focus on the need for more um, development of funding and on assistance to hosting states. Those things have, have come along as the process works, and I think there's more work that can be done on the drafting as well. That's the inside game, question of how far it can go that way, and what kind of outside game, what broader political strategy is necessary. I'm actually going to leave that to Gregory to figure out, because I'm still just a, 
just an academic or a policy wonk, and I'm just, I'm just going to tell you what the right answer should be. I'm not going to tell you how to get there. That would be worth for other people to do that. But I do want to say the following on this, that, that um, some right answers are not achievable for long. And I'm going to give you some right answers. Speaking of, that's not the right way to say it. I'll give you some suggestions as to the way I think the system ought to move here um, that we're not going to accomplish in the next year. But by putting these ideas on the table now, we may be there in four or five years. And the question is, can you put into the compact the kind of hooks that will then allow for these broader ideas to be developed um, down, uh, down the road? Let me take two more minutes that I'm probably saving my time here uh, on what I think remains to be done uh, in the compact. First of all, on responsibility sharing. So UNHCR has now put into the compact this, this idea of a global summit, which is really a large pledging, uh, uh, pledging system every couple of years, really built on the o o Obama summit that happened in 2016, the so-called Leaders Summit, where he called the countries of the world together and said, what can you guys promise to help move the system forward? I'm skeptical about this actually working, uh, because I'm skeptical about states pre-committing to what they will do three years down the road, and the actual um, meeting of the commitments of the Obama summit, first of all, the commitments are never made public, and secondly, whether or not they've actually been met is unclear to me. Some of them have been, not all of them have been. So I'm, it's nice to get the countries of the world together to say over the next three years we're gonna resettle this many people and put this much more money in, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not sure that's, a, that's the strongest way to go. I think more importantly, these so-called support platforms that have been proposed, and um, I think um, what UNHCR is proposing is for particular situations to be a platform of a coalition of the willing and not afraid, but we use it of states that get together to say, we've got a problem, how are we gonna solve this comprehensively? Which you would think would happen in every refugee situation now, but it doesn't, it never has happened. It happens it's episodically in big situations. We can point to two or three historically, but there's not a regular procedure whereby states get together and say, we've got a big problem, the Rohingya situation, the Somali situation, the Syrian situation, how are we gonna do this comprehensively at a political level? try to solve it, it's never happened in a serious situation. The problem with the current draft is it localizes these platforms to particular situations, and I think, and I think a lot of the states are of this view as well, I think UNHCR will get some more pressure on this to make this more of a global platform that can be called together to work on this kind of uh, responsibility sharing. Without this, this system, the, the, the compact is not worth going forward. I'll say that that's all of it. I think the main problem is a lack of responsibility sharing to help end these protracted situations. If you don't put something in place, you will end up simply with this comprehensive response framework, which will mean slightly better operation on the ground, but will not be able to make the major effort on really responding to and resolving these situations. Um, just a couple of last points here. The other thing to think about here is the role of, of, of development here uh, in, in the compact. So there's a lot about the necessity of development. That's, that's now accepted. We need development actors there. What's not being thought about in a broader perspective, I'm looking at Maria Zaymore here who's in the audience, has written uh, on this uh, and made some very important proposals, is how you expand the idea of development from simply uh, more development aid to thinking more broadly about other kinds of development policies, like debt relief or debt moratorium, or the, what is the IMF doing with countries that are being asked to absorb lots of refugees, but at the same time they're being asked to adopt austerity budgets? How do you make more coherent these broader kind of economic policies? I think that could be added into the document for sure. And um, uh, the last one I'll say here is on refugee participation. Um, 
UNHCR has forever talked about the importance of refugee participation and in coming up with local plans, it's quite common for uh, the local operations to consult with refugee groups and the like. But we've never had refugee participation at the global level. If you think about it, it's somewhat odd that we have an executive committee of almost 100 states now, uh, where NGOs are given a few minutes at the end of the regular EXCOM meetings but, uh, to speak, but there's no refugee participation. Uh, there are now some groups forming uh, around the world that are attempting to bring refugees together, congresses or meetings and the like, but I think they're really pushing on the idea of refugees being present here. I think UNHCR is open to this, and I think the states need to open up to the really hear uh, the voice uh, of refugees in this. Um, I've got more to say, but I've taken my time off talking. Thank sure you very much. Susan, please. Sure. Thank you. Um, and again, I'll thank everybody that Alex thanked the Intelligence Center, um, OSF, co-author. Um, uh, this has been a very, very interesting uh, process of putting together um, a report that deals with both processes and both impacts. Um, and following both of them, um, working collaboratively, I think each of us learned things about the other contact that we didn't start off really thinking about or, or knowing. Um, I think the process, as both Guy and Alex uh, mentioned for the uh, migration compact, not only different than it was for the refugee one, um, but builds on a process that just really began to take shape about 10 years ago, although the antecedents go well before that. Uh, but I must admit, Anyone had told me in uh, 2006, uh, when the high-level dialogue on migration and development uh, was taking place, that within 12 years, uh, there would be serious negotiations um, with the potential for having a global compact on international migration um, signed by, you know, hopefully by consensus um, of the governments. Um, I'd have told them absolutely no way that things are going to um, because that was a point at which the governments couldn't even agree um, on what form to talk to each other in. Um, and that they, um, there was such resistance to bringing anything with regard to migration into the UN system that they are now negotiating under the umbrella of the United Nations a state, you know, through a state-like process uh, to develop, to just come to agreement on the statement that, um, that I made that there is need for international cooperation, um, not mig international migration, because no one state can do it alone, even if unfortunately the state in which we're meeting thinks it can and is um, current administration. Um, but they're just wrong. And uh, I think history has shown enough now that, um, that the management of migration, the benefits of migration, uh, dealing with problems of migration require collaborative efforts amongst all of the states that are involved in um, the issue. Um, so my first take on this whole process is um, that seeing in a historic perspective, understanding what the level of resistance was just a few years ago um, to having anything of this sort, uh, that there's been a victory of sorts. I think the New York Declaration went well beyond anything I expected that it would. I think in retrospect, although a lot of, um, of NGOs and others and academics who said, uh, not really 
doing as much as you should. I think in retrospect, it is an amazing document, um, given the, the politics and the political underpinning of the book um, and circumstance in which it was adopted. Um, I'm um, cautiously optimistic, as I think we both are with regard to the compact processes, um, that we will have something um, that will be negotiated, which will be worth pursuing and taking forward, but quite cautious at this point. Um, and as Guy said, it is a moving target. Um, I think in some respects, it tracks a little bit more so on the migration side than the refugee side, um, only because of the negotiation versus uh, consultation uh, concept. Um, although I've been interested to see in the public meetings, um, UNHCR officials often starting to say, well, we're, nego we're, we're consulting on that issue um, because they understand it really is a negotiation taking place, although it's, they want to call it a consultation. Um, as with the refugee compact, we've gone from zero draft to first draft. Um, I think although while the um, first draft on the refugee um, compact, we both agree, has addressed some of the problems and issues that were, um, we were concerned about in the zero draft. Um, I think on the migration draft, there's been some pulling of punches um, in the next draft. But again, as a result of the first round of negotiations, uh, not as much as one could have feared uh, might happen. Um, and that leads to continuing to have this cautious um, optimism. Uh, I won't go through all of the parts of the, uh, of the compact as, as Alex did with, with the refugee compact, uh, but talk about a few of the issues that we think still need to be resolved or be addressed in some form. And some of these, I must admit, I'm rather skeptical will happen in compacts themselves, but the markers need to be set that these are issues that will still be on, on the table when the big compact is adopted either of these compacts are adopted and we need to have them in mind um, in moving forward so that at least the compact process gives space for moving to the next step in the negotiations and getting to some of the fundamental issues which are not as likely to be uh, resolved through uh, this now getting shorter process uh, before us. And I'll start at the very, um, the sort of top and the overall, the, the chapeau, if you want to um, put it, of the um, migration compact. Um, in that I don't, we don't think that it has the vision that is necessary for a document of this type of potential significance. Um, nor does it have the structure of the compact itself that is needed. Um, that the, um, there needs to be a stronger restatement of commitments to the what was agreed upon in the New York Declaration, so it's very clear um, what those are. Um, at present, the principles that are defined in the compact um, are not particularly normative. Um, a lot of them are almost more operational of how to cooperate rather than what the underlying principles are that um, require the cooperation. Um, I think that they should state clearly that migration is a public good. 
um, and that the world benefits when there is safe weather and regular migration. You know, just up there clearly and as a first principle. And a second pr principle is that the safety of migrants must be the highest priority in behavior. Um, so that it becomes something that is a statement of a, a strong warranted position with regard to um, the heart of the compact, though, are the commitments that are being made, um, and hopefully the term commitments made um, in the, um, the compact so that it can reflect the fact that these are serious decisions on the part of states um, and will be as you know, little wishy-washiness as, as we can get um, in terms of the language. Uh, but for me, and it's and Alex, I think because we've been on both sides of the academic and the policy and practice um, side of these issues, having 22 separate commitments with no sense of prioritization and no sense of how different parts of this work together um, is a recipe for nothingness at the end of the day. Um, because when you have so many commitments, um, it's not giving any real structure to any of those. Um, so the paper, we, we chose to group them. There could be other groupings. Um, but we looked at them in terms of um, the importance of data and information. So putting together the um, objectives in both of those um, areas. Um, addressing the drivers of migration, an area that needs to have, talk about more development. Um, all of those that talk about the, the human rights of of migrants, the, um, the ones in terms of principles with regard to protection is another area where multiple um, objectives that touch on those issues. Um, the regular, um, the need for regular migration channels. Um, it was almost amazing to me that a compact that says this is a compact on safety, including regular migration, has relatively little in it that actually deals with safe, regular, and orderly migration. Um, more on labor migration, uh, there are things on that. Um, family migration is basically a paragraph. There's really very little, um, and certainly nothing that would draw off existing international law to set a normative framework in which family um, migration can be considered. And I think that needs to uh, come out much um, more strongly. Um, the positive way, um, the push towards having um, the potential for humanitarian admissions and other policies to deal with people leaving life-threatening situations as part of the schema for safe, orderly, and regular migration in a very positive direction. And I'll come back to that because I think it's also one where um, a lot more needs to be done. Um, and then the curtailing of irregular migration multiple objectives that um, deal with that, and then integration, reintegration of immigrants um, and their, um, and the links to development. Um, there seem to be some connections amongst those. These are all, all of the objectives can fall into a category, sometimes multiple categories, um, but there's nothing in the compact right now that shows how this becomes a cohesive whole, rather than a set of
Um, so changes there. Um, also, there needs to, I think, be a stronger statement or developed statement with regard to biocompact um, um, and following up on this you know, statement made in 2016, carried through in, in 2018 about no state can do it alone. Um, what are we thinking about then with regard to global governance? Uh, this is an area that's not going to be solved or issued not to be solved uh, immediately. Um, but thinking through at a principle level of what states want out of a compact that supports international cooperation, I think we make it a much stronger uh, compact in the sense of being something that uh, countries can subscribe to as being important for their own future and that, that, that includes the world. Um, let me go back to the um, point I made about the a positive is that it has taken up the concept of life-threatening migration, or, or they actually dropped that term, life-threatening, which I was sorry to see. Um, but um, for those of you who may know my work, I've been working over the last uh, few decades on trying to fill some of the gaps in protection uh, between those who fit under the refugee convention and the as both in a de in a de jure and a de facto way uh, in terms of persecution and conflict, um, who they fall out of this area, but they nevertheless have a need for international protection uh, because they cannot return to their countries of origin because their lives would be threatened in some way. Uh, the compact does pick up on that issue and it actually comes out in a number of different ways. Um, generally, in the context of natural disasters, um, sometimes the effects of uh, climate change uh, and, um, and other things that make it difficult to return people. I mean, recognition, at least, that there is a body of migrants who are in need of protection and the international community right now doesn't have the mechanisms to deal adequately with that and individual countries don't have the systems in place uh, to deal with those categories of people. Um, I think that what the compact is moving towards two conclusions with regard that, to that and I think both could be strengthened. And as we looked at the refugee compact and the migration compact, that strengthening falls between the two and or overlaps the two. Um, and now there's reference in both contexts to that being an issue, uh, but then it kind of just, okay, it's an issue. It doesn't really go beyond that. Um, the two areas meaning strengthening as we um, discussed it um, is one is a, effectively a non rapeful mob standard. Um, when is it that you do not forcibly return people, even if they don't meet the refugee criteria, uh, but are nevertheless would be they return home, and what should be the criteria for that, and how should it be framed? Um, and then the second one that assumes people are already out of their home countries, the second of the what type of humanitarian admissions are needed in order to provide some solutions. Um, and in the context of climate change, which is part of what the compact raises in terms of the drivers um, of migration. Uh, there may be people who have to be 
taken or helped to be to assisted in leaving their home countries and finding some other place of, of, to live. And so having a more development on the humanitarian mission side with regard to these populations um, is something we're going to be facing um, and could be better developed in the compact or at least a process underway that is acknowledged the compact that will look at this issue for the future. Um, another gap we um, saw, and a related gap that we saw in the two compacts, um, is that neither deals with internal movements and the relationship between internal and, and cross-border movements. Um, I, I think you were, either you or, or Murad or Gregory you know, pulled out the number that is used all of the time now, 66 million people of concern to UNHCR is there. They fall somehow within the of, of interest to UNHCR. And the problem is that 40 plus million of those are internally displaced persons. Um, and they, governments were very clear, some governments extremely clear, that they would not be part of the compact. Um, and that, I think, politically is probably a good thing. But this compact needs really to acknowledge that there is a problem in that the refugee side as well as the migration side, people who are internally moving cross borders at certain points, or people who cross borders when they return become internal migrants or internally displaced persons. Um, and so to ignore it leaves a major gap, and it's again one that falls because neither voluntary nor involuntary movements internally come to play. And that's um, a problem. Um, let me talk, there are a variety of other things in the, in the paper, I won't um, talk about them, but we'll talk a little bit about the monitoring review assessment processes um, in it. Um, there is, compared to the um, the refugee compact, which is trying to set up a lot of different mechanisms to try to deal with particular problems, uh, the migration compact um, really stops with having the um, high-level dialogues um, transformed into a global platform for discussing migration. It's every four years. Um, there's almost nothing in it about even if that is a good way to do it, and there'd be regional things in the intervening years. Um, but it doesn't really talk about metrics, assessment, how we make the determination that the kinds of commitments that states are making um, are being carried out, or identifying what is the financial health, what are the, um, what are the processes that are needed in order to be able to build state capacity in order to carry out their commitments. Um, and so I, we hope that the, um, as the negotiations move forward, that there's more in them with regard to how to carry out the, this process, or at least, again, a process that they commit to undertake to move forward to that. Um, I think a lot of us in this room are very much involved with 
uh, the getting migration into the SDGs and thinking about um, about uh, ways of assessing uh, the the value of that and the the impacts of it. And I think that that same process is needed for determining these uh, these various uh, commitments that states are making. Uh, final point, and I couldn't agree in one respect more with Gregory than you're still here to hear them. Uh, but clearly, without political leadership, um, all of this is just not even worth the paper that it's printed on, uh, that there needs to be. And of course, with the global compact, that's a big problem uh, because the, of the Trump administration's withdrawal from it when the country with 30% of all of the world's international migrants is in part of the process, uh, that is, is telling. Um, and but I want to remember that the Bush administration did not take part in the Global Forum on Migration and Development when it was first put in place. So American administrations come and go. Uh, the Obama administration was not you know, part of the process, but was quite active and quite vocal, willing to take leadership on issues like migrants in uh, countries in crisis to get new, new principles, new um, agreements underway on it. Um, and I think for those of us who um, are really committed to making these compacts work and be um, implemented in a, in a constructive manner, uh, I think that almost being a shadow government sorts to keep the U.S. perspective going um, as these compacts are being negotiated um, is very important for the future and ensuring that there will be eventually constructive uh, U.S. involvement in the processes. So I will stop there. Thank you very much indeed, Alex. Thank you very much indeed, Susan. Um, I'm going to step into the role of animateur now and try to encourage a bit of comeback from yourselves. Um, I'm sure there are opinions, I'm sure there are questions. Um, for technical, perhaps for legal reasons, I've been asked to repeat myself any question or comment that you make, so please try to be brief if my memory is not as good as it used to be. So here we have plenty of meat to get our sink our teeth in or fish if we're not that way in time. Um, who would like to take off? Take off. Yes, please. Hi, my name is Shaq Dan. Um, I just wanted to say that there's a lot of work that needs to be done started reading the two compacts, I actually had to set them aside for a while because I felt very frustrated. Uh, and I felt like I didn't have it in me to read them when they first came out, but I needed to think about it for a while. And I think like a lot of us, I have been thinking about things a lot recently. And one of the questions I wanted to ask you was, this is a very technical document, um, and move out and take more big picture. One thing when I talk to my friends and family about what I do and, and what we all here I think share is our values and our, our sort of overarching vision, it is hard to articulate to people where we all think the world will be in a hundred years. Like when we picture the future, what do we see? Because I have friends who are very involved in the environmental movement. And when you ask environmentalists, 
what do you see in 100 years? They see solar panels on every rooftop in America and wind turbines in every wind, windy place generating renewable energy and you know electric cars plugging into you know solar panels. They, they have a sort of almost sort of science fiction-y view of where we're all going to be going. But when you ask people who work with migrants or work with refugees, what do you see in the future? Do you see, oh, there's no borders and everyone, no more passports, people just go where they need to go for their job. Or we do have borders, but you know, if you if, if you're if you really need to go to a different country, you can always figure out a way to go there peacefully and without there being, you know, coercion or violence or so I wanted to ask you guys sort of big picture because we are living through this kind of extraordinary time for our field. Uh, what do you see when you look at the future and where is this going, you know, years and years down the line? So does the nation state have a future? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for summarizing. <laughs> Someone else. Yes, please. Uh, yeah, just briefly, I was wondering if you could expand a little bit on these kinds of things from the perspective of China or Russia or India. I mean, nothing's going to get anywhere but just on boundaries working on uh, labor mobility as a pathway to solutions to protection of refugee protection needs. Um, the, one of the things that strikes me in the compact on refugees is that there's a short section on solutions and yet it seems to me that if we had some better idea about what solutions would look like then the discussion about <coughs> burden sharing, responsibility sharing would perhaps look quite different because it would, rather than saying what the host states are prepared to accept, um, it would be about how do we, what are we working backwards? What does the solution look like? What do we need to put into place in order to be able to reach the solutions? We seem to be coming at it from, from the pretty predictable, um, we seem to um, not be accepting that it's pretty predictable that uh, war and, and conflict are just a part of what we do in people displaced through that. And similarly with, with um, the climate, while well, there are people who deny it, it we can work in a more strategic way. Susan, Alex. Um, China, Russia, India, these are not the major players in the refugee system. So far, there's always this thought we have to involve these folks more. Most of the work really has been led by the hosting states uh, and, the, and the donor states, I think that will continue. I don't see these states playing a major role in the compact or it would be nice if they did, but I, 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 as a political matter, I don't see them as major players here. Um, on the question on mobility, I mean, I, you know, we do have these traditional three solutions of return, resettlement, and, and I think that the, I mean, if I paint a picture of what a, a new way of thinking about solutions would be, I think it would be significant assistance to the hosting states, both humanitarian development assistance, so that refugees are not seen as a burden, but actually as an opportunity for the host. And then mobility for refugees. I think that the real crucial aspect of harm for refugees is that they're locked in. They're pushed out of their homes and they're locked into a country for asylum that happen to fall into because it's next door to their home state. And they never move. Um, and so there has to be some form of mobility out of that. Through labor, 
the regional mobility within next door states. But and this is not in the compact now. But I think it would be a, a really big step. You don't have to get to worldwide mobility, but eventually you should. And you're the question of 100 years from now. We won't be alive, but <laughs> the world is still here. And there ultimately should be some sort of larger mobility. But you could start with a, a regional kind of mobility. So I, I think this would be the new kind of thinking. And on, on the 100 year question, really, it's the 10 year question. I, I, there are two views. There's a totally dystopic view of people uh, creating new uh, borders uh, and boundaries, and Susan can say more on the immigration side of that, or one that is more open to well-ordered migration and refugee protection. But the problem on the refugee side of that is that we have to have a system that says people have been forced out of their states for whatever reason, and who need to rebuild their lives somewhere else are taken care of. And that's what the compact should be pointing towards in the broadest way, rather than narrow definitions of, you know, and, and I think it gets close to that through the, as Susan described, in the description of the people in need of international protection. Now, in both, in both compacts, it says the people in need of, of international protection are people who, can, who can't go home because of risk at home. That's a really important statement. As Susan said, it doesn't come with knowledge for all rights, it doesn't come with admission rights, but it's a start, and that could be quite significant. Um, let me start also the first question. I, I, I think the think 100 years ahead doesn't venture very far, um, and particularly about this field. And, and the way God restated the question, I, I, I think the nation state system will be a lacking role um, for the foreseeable future. I mean, 100 years from now, I don't expect that there's going to be any real fundamental change in that system. What I think we can hope for, uh, and I think that this is a beginning point in the migration area, um, is that we have international cooperation in managing that nation state system to the point where people can move in a safe, legal, and orderly manner. Um, and I think that that's really what the goal needs to be, not to try to eliminate borders um, necessarily with the nation state. But to provide ways that the tensions in the nation state system can be addressed through safe means. Um, and we, I would hope that we would not have the, um, the votes. Um, given some of the other factors, I'm, I'm surprised that if, you know, your environmentalist friends are all just talking about all of the great you know, technical innovations. Um, because a lot of the ones I talk with are talking about masses of people on the move because of the loss of, uh, of habitat and livelihoods and things of that sort. Um, and that's an area where I think we have the time. Uh, we you know, already have people who were displaced by natural disasters uh, and slow onset uh, impacts, but the, um, the projections are that the numbers will go up uh, over the next 40 years modestly, and post 40 years, probably quite a lot more significantly. Both managers put out a report on the 40-year um, concept, and, the, and the, the bottom line of that is that the movements are going to be manageable. They're not going to be huge in this way in which some of the, um, some of the analysis <coughs> has, has shown. Uh, but beyond that point, what we do between now and 40 years is what's going to be it still remains manageable or becomes, um, becomes very problematic. Um, so 
ambition is that I hope migration can be managed well, but not necessarily with the complete destruction of the nation state system, which I think does some benefits to it. China, Russia, India, and NATO, um, I purposely tried not to do the um, kind of work that some of the others in this room who probably have some, some views on this um, have been doing because they are in New York um, in really following who is saying what, when, and um, in what context. Um, and I know that the, the Chinese, the Russian, the, the Indian have perspectives on the migration compact. Um, they tend, I think, not to be quite as vocal, you know, uh, visibly vocal on it, but certainly their take on it, the language that they really don't like, they communicate that they really want to see that word removed. Um, and so they're playing a part in that respect, more so than a part that is a positive, constructive, this is where we need to go and we want to help get there. It's just don't have anything in there that we can accept. Um, so I think it's a different kind of role. Um, and the solutions, um, you know, Alex addressed, and I very much agree with that on uh, the migration side also, that you know, what we want is to have two sets of solutions. One are things that allow people to stay safely where they are, if that's what they want, and solutions that allow people to move safely and become integrated into the communities if that's if they want to remain permanently or reintegrate if they want to return home. Um, and I think it's that balance of things of having seen the migration compact and as a way of offering those solutions by uh, being clear that addressing the drivers of migration doesn't mean stopping migration. It means making sure that it's safe um, and dealing with the drivers that force people to move in a way that's not safe. Um, but then to have the regular channels and um, as I said in my comments, um, I think we need a lot more on that piece of it. <coughs> really saying what those channels um, can be well, just two very few comments to, uh, to underscore what Susan said. Uh, we have, in a way, a kind of boring, wonkish, underlying thesis here, which is these are manageable problems. I mean, for all the word of, well, words about crisis around the world, the number of refugees in the world are 22 million. It's a population of 7 billion people. The number of migrants in the world, 250 million, is less than 5% of the overall population. Doesn't mean, as Gregory said, there won't be many people moving in the future in life, but these are management problems with very sound, straightforward kind of policy solutions. Of course, the political issue is very tough. I'm not saying those are easily solved. But the actual, I mean, the work we suggest here is it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not rocket science. Um, it's just good old-fashioned policy work about we've got, a, we've got a problem we've got to deal with. We can deal with it without problem. The other point is just on the the future of the, the nation, nation state here. Um, I think states, uh, I think Susan, I agree that states will be around for a while. I, I, I think we would also agree that states are, um, are, are being decentered uh, in this discourse. So the supranational free movement zones in Europe and in 
West Africa now for potentially all of Africa, points to different kinds of migration schemes. And at the local level, cities are becoming much more important in, uh, in the migration and refugee world. That's where the rubber hits the road, where there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. So states are there, but there are also these other political organizations above and below that will have increasingly important roles as we move forward and well worth paying attention to. Yeah, on that, on that point too, um, cities are actually directly and closely involved in, in other UN initiatives, for example, on disaster risk reduction. And it does seem to me, and there are these intriguing references to subnational units in various the documents, it does seem to me that a lot of the future, uh, the response to refugees and migrants is going to be in the hands of those first responders, civil society, at the city level in particular. More comments or questions? Yes, sir. Yes, hello there, thank you. I'm Brian Ross, and I'm with Asylum Access. Uh, we work to make human rights a reality for refugees. I wanted to ask about, excuse me, I wanted to ask about accountability and what was mentioned um, about gathering evidence-based uh, information that uh, speaks to nation states, or if you like, some other more limited or more regional geographies, that speaks to their progress in the follow-through of commitments made, and specifically, what role you see civil society playing, or how can institutions uh, improve the ability of civil society to continue to leverage in nation states, the kind of accountability that's needed. Thank you. Accountability in the democratization of the international system. Yes. Another comment? Yes. Um, uh, I have two quick questions. So first of all, uh, uh, could you speak up? Yes. Uh, sorry. My name is Karina Kostovic. I'm from I have a question about the divisions in the global compact and on refugees and migrants. It's been sometimes criticizing given the fact that some, sometimes the drivers or mi migration are so complex, so uh, where, where these divisions come from. And, um, and then I was wondering how are, uh, you mentioned that it's important to include different stakeholders in the process of developing the, um, the compact and it's happening with the global compact on refugees. And I'm, I'm wondering how are actually the stakeholders identified, especially uh, I'm thinking about um, NGOs working with refugees or migrants. Uh, there are meetings here in New York of NGO Committee on Migration and uh, and an organization being represented here are quite, I would say, unrepresentative for the population of even non-profit operating here in New York City. So that's something I'm, I'm interested in. Um, and is there any way to move, uh, and what is the way to move forward with the states which um, withdrew from the negotiations. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Um, Linda Bashai with the American Bar Association Rule of Law Initiative. Uh, we held a, a large conference last week on rule of law enforced migration, and I am drafting the final report and recommendations, so this is perfect timing for me. Thank you. <laughs> um, I have a very technical question, which is um, in our discussion of the, the migration compact um, and, and sort of feeding off of the, the desire for evidence basis that's in that compact in particular, which may actually be a direct result of the U.S. withdrawal, the fact that we're talking about evidence in the compact. Um, there's this provision that recommends the um, question about citizenship in a national census. And I'm wondering is, I mean, that of course is lightning rod to the American NGO community in dealing with migration and immigration questions. So 
My question is, is that a global practice that somehow makes more sense in the rest of the world? Because it does seem like it could be very easily twisted and be prone to manipulation and, and disempowering for the migrants. Thank you.
And it's only this recently, actually, in the U.S. that it's become a, a major issue because we had that debate in, I think, it was the 50s, and kind of dropped the um, some of the questions that were being asked that could, could put people into immigrant categories and um, made some changes in it. Uh, but we do get that information through the American Community Survey, um, and we've gotten it through the through a variety of other labor, labor force surveys, um, the current population survey um, that was done. Um, so I think the, the big issue, um, I think, is what do you need to have in place surrounding this census to make sure that people feel comfortable responding to that question um, and taking part period of the census. Um, Historically, um, the, you know, the last 40, 50 years, the U.S. has been very, very good. Um, and uh, you know, Alex says this from his time at IMS um, about it being made very clear to immigrant communities that there will be no enforcement in town with the census. Um, and that steps will be taken to make sure that um, people who respond are protected um, and that. It may be for research purposes, but for, you, know, you don't want to get down to certain neighborhood levels where it may be very clear that this is the neighborhood where, uh, where you know, people are when you release the, the data. <coughs> it's very, very important to make sure, as we do, that a census cannot be used um, for certain purposes um, that are not in the Constitution. Um, I mean, we have a, a recent example in, in Rwanda, though, um, where the census was used in some labor force surveys and health surveys um, were used by the Genocide in 1994 to identify um, um, Tutsi for um, the genocide. Um, so anything using the census has the potential to be very, very harmful. It's what protections you put in place that can reduce some of that harm. The division between the migration, I think both of us probably speak on that one. Um, I think there are advantages to having two separate documents coming out of the New York Declaration because it allows the things that are specific to each population to really be developed in greater detail and not in a document that is so long that it becomes almost Possible to get through. These are already pretty dense documents. Um, our concern is that there are these gaps between the two and overlaps between the two. And for a variety of reasons, um, including the U.S. withdrawal from the Migration Compact, um, the ability to look at those gaps and overlaps has been significantly reduced because the decisions made apparently not to refer to each other. Um, and to allow them to go through, and I think probably to keep the U.S. going on the refugee um, compact. Um, and I think that's unfortunate, and I think we really need to have some commitments by states, even if it's a small number of states, you know, really multilateralism, which I've um, also written about, that a small number of, of states um, committing to a follow-up process that will deal with the gaps in the between the two contacts. I think 
and probably have mechanisms in place which will, in some way or another, point the finger at those who have not lived up to what they pledged, what they promised, or what they committed to. So I think interesting times ahead indeed. And thank you, Alex, and thank you, Susan, for giving us this detailed analysis of the two draft agreements, showing what's uh, in it, what's missing, and what risks lie in the way of their adoption by the end of, of, of this year, 2018. It is a watershed moment, I think. Um, I do incline to optimism, or perhaps we say naivety. Um, but in Martin Luther King's words, tomorrow is today. We are confronted with the urgency of now. We must move past indecision to action. And let's hope that that is what we will achieve in the year ahead. Thank you very much indeed.